When Emily Starr loses her father to tuberculosis and finds herself an orphan, she has no choice but to go stay with her late mother's family in a town called New Moon. The Murrays, that's her mother's family, pride themselves on being, well, proud, and most of them are pretty intimidating. But the good news is that New Moon itself is a beautiful place full of potential friends for Emily. As she transitions into her new life, Emily fights to maintain her love of writing, to preserve her father's memory, and to keep asking questions about her place in the universe. That was a very high-level description of what happens in L.M. Montgomery's Emily of New Moon, a book that was published in 1923, more than a decade after Anne of Green Gables. I met Emily Starr for the first time while preparing for this episode, and you are about to hear a lot more about her. My guests and I dig deeper into the plot and get to the heart of the important role it played in one guest's childhood. We discuss orphan tropes, the way Emily's passion for writing mirrors our own, one-room schoolhouses, the enduring truths of childhood, different understandings of God, teen angst, possession, universalism, atheism, teachers on power trips, how Emily compares to Anne Shirley, and cats as reading buddies. We also talk quite a bit about death and grief, so please be mindful of that before jumping in. Today's guests are the co-hosts of the Leaving Eden podcast, which is one of my personal favorites. Each week on Leaving Eden, Sadie Carpenter and Gavrielle Hakoen discuss elements of Sadie's life in and escape from the Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church, or the IFB. I am consistently impressed by the level of research and hard work that goes into each and every episode, and if you enjoy learning about cults, religion, fundamentalism, conspiracy theories, or subcultures more generally, I highly recommend their podcast. Sadie and Gavi aim to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion, which we love. You can find Leaving Eden wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and on Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast and on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. One of the coolest things about Leaving Eden is that, like SSR, it is an independent podcast. Independent pods operate without the support or financial backing of a larger organization, and that's why listener support is so important. If you enjoy listening to SSR and appreciate the work that goes into it, I would love for you to consider becoming a Patreon supporter, starting at just $1 per month. That works out to just $0.25 an episode. At each sponsorship tier, you'll get access to different exclusive rewards. Plus, our Patreon community is a very tight-knit one, and we would love to have you. Learn more and jump in at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If joining Patreon isn't in the cards for you at the moment, no worries. You can also support the podcast by leaving a five-star rating or review, or by posting a screenshot of this episode to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me at ssrpod so I can see it and share. This past Saturday, independent bookstores all over the country celebrated Indie Bookstore Day. I had so much fun enjoying the occasion here in Philly with a group of SSR listeners for our first ever retreat. But who says that we can't keep the good times rolling for indies? You can support independent booksellers all year long by shopping for audiobooks with Libro.fm and for physical books at bookshop.org. Treat yourself to some new books at either or both of these places at the link in SSR's Instagram bio at SSRpod. You deserve it, and I can't wait to see what you get. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. 
What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Gabby. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. Hello. I am so happy to be joining you today. Yes. What a wonderful way to spend my Sunday. I'm so excited to meet you both. We were chatting before I hit record, but listeners, I'm a huge fan of the Leaving Eden podcast, and you've already heard more about it in the intro, and we'll talk more about it at the end of the show. But I just have to say again, like I feel a little fangirly right now because I spend a lot of hours with these two in my ears. So I, I feel like I'm finally getting to meet some real friends who didn't know they were my friends until right now. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I am very pro uh, parasocial relationships turning into real relationships as long as there's consent. <laughs> I mean, you know, we do, Sadie and I both have listeners to the to our show who have gone on to become really close personal friends of ours just through the community that we've been able to help cultivate. So I'll let it happen if it, if it goes that way. So, you know, that's how I feel about that. I feel like I'm auditioning to be your friend a little bit. <laughs> So I hope it goes well. I'm a little nervous now. Um, But we are talking about Emily of New Moon by L.M. Montgomery today. And this was a book that was new to me. Sadie, I understand that this was a book that was really important to you when you were growing up. And I will share that I read Anne of Green Gables for the first time for this podcast. So I just was like not an L.M. Montgomery reader when I was a kid. I read a lot when I was growing up. But those classics just never really were on my radar And when I recorded the episode about Anne of Green Gables, I guess it was probably like 2019, I remember I came across an essay that was about why this particular reviewer preferred Emily to Anne. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of Emily Starr. So I did a little bit of digging about that series at that point, but I just had never really like thought to add it to my list until you suggested it. And I'm so glad you did, because I am going to say right now, I agree with that reviewer and I preferred Emily to Anne. I do too. Um, And that's no shade to Anne. Anne is such a wonderful classic character. And I'm so glad that she exists in our literary world. She deserves every bit of the attention and praise and Netflix series and everything else (laughs) that she gets. I do love Emily more. It's not that Anne doesn't deserve it. It's just that Emily does also. Yes. So you're saying that like Anne of Green Gables is like the, the commercial success record and Emily of New Moon is like the deep cut that the real fans know? Precisely. Exactly that. <laughs> so I read a lot of books by Ellen Montgomery as a kid. That was something that was approved for me growing up in a very religious environment. Uh, I'm not quite sure how Emily slipped past the radar. Because there's a lot of mysticism in the Emily books. She has this um, almost out-of-body experience that she calls the flash, Mm -hmm. which she describes as like a moment of creative inspiration that sweeps her away from her real life and awakens her imagination and awakens her fantasy worlds that she lives in in her own mind. And there are also some even more mystical 
bits and pieces in this book where Emily knows things that she would have no way of knowing. So this book definitely slipped under the radar because everybody had read and approved of Anne and they just thought, oh, it's the same author. This will be fine. And Emily was just so incredibly precious to me growing up in an extremely religious environment because I thought Emily thought the way that I thought and she romanticized her life the way that I did. Well, in the parasocial relationship that I have with you that you didn't know I had with you until 20 minutes ago, <laughs> as I was reading this book, because I feel like I know you and I've, I've heard so much about your childhood and growing up in the community that you grew up in, I was fascinated thinking about you absorbing some of this information because not only is there mysticism, but there's this real confusion about God in this book. And so I'm, I'm eager to talk about that. Gabby, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that maybe you have not read this book before. I hadn't read this book before. I'd read Anne of Green Gables okay. before. Um, when I was a kid, I think I must have been probably like 10, 11, okay. 12 or something. My mom, it was one of the books that my mom, you know, went before we go to bed, she would read like chapters out of a book to us. And so that was one of the ones I think that she read. I also remember that Anne of Green Gables had a TV show on PBS, like a cartoon TV show on PBS that I watched and I found it somewhat enjoyable. So I was familiar with the work of L.M. Montgomery and I'm familiar with like, is it a trope of like an orphan girl going to... Uh, place and people are mean to her it is so i i'm i'm aware of but this is just kind of like the goth version almost of, yeah. of like anne of green gables as sadie so kindly described it to me a little bit ago i like that description and i will say though we seem to be emily fans in this group there's a graphic novel called anne of west philly that came out last year and gavi as a new philly resident you should check it out but it's a it's a graphic novel based on anne of green gables and it's about an anne shirley who is black and who moves in with a foster family in West Philly. And it's really, really great. I have got to read that. I think you would like it. That sounds so amazing. It's really good. Very interesting. I haven't totally explored West Philly yet. I live in like, I don't want to say my exact address, but I live close to Independence Hall okay. is, is the general area of where I live. And I haven't totally explored West Philly yet, but I do love the the local pride that exists here. And so that's something that I might have to look into. Yeah, the graphic novel is fun and it might inspire you to check out West Philly more. Do you remember anything about when you read Anne of Green Gables with your mom? Like, do you remember enjoying it? Is there anything that stuck with you about this experience as you encountered Emily for the first time? You know, I, I remember that uh, one of the things that really... The, the plot points that really jumped out to me was when Gilbert pulled her hair and yeah. yelled carrots and she got real freaking mad about that. I also remember they made her a school teacher when she was 16 and then there was a boy who was really mouthy and then she hit him on the hands with a ruler and then he was nice to her, which I don't know, man. I, I feel like maybe it's just because Sadie and I have been spending so much time lately reading To Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl that... Uh, I'm like anything where they're just like, oh, they they're hitting a child. I'm just like, no, <laughs> don't do that. But no, I, I, I do remember really the thing about Montgomery is is the protagonist in these books is is there people that you can root for, and that you can really support for, and you can really uh, uh, sympathize with. So that's something that I do enjoy. Yeah, I think that's true. I remember my sort of frustration with Anne was the fact that I found her to be a little like over earnest maybe um 
and I hate to call her grading because she's a child, but I just, I struggled to sort of wrap my head around some of her enthusiasm, maybe. I just didn't quite get it. I read in a couple of reviews that she was like the original manic pixie dream girl, um, which I think is a fair assessment. <laughs> and while I wasn't necessarily thinking of her in that way, when I read the book, if I frame her in retrospect that way, I'm like, okay, maybe that was why I struggled. But let's talk about Emily because Emily is is an, an all new L.M. Montgomery experience for me. This book was published 10 years after Anne of Green Gables. So L.M. Montgomery also had some more life experience. I read that there's quite a bit of this book that is autobiographical for L.M. Montgomery, which might also be why it's a bit darker. Um, it explores some more adult themes versus the Anne books. So that kind of is like the overall broad strokes picture of this series for those of you who haven't read it. And Sadie, you mentioned this a little bit before, but I know you mentioned before we started recording that you had thought even more about how Emily played into your childhood and, and maybe things about her that you connected to. So I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So Gavi, you brought up the the trope of orphan girl gets put in a situation she doesn't want to be in and all the adults are mean to her. Yes. A classic. Well, I don't know if you remember, but one of the first books that I pitched for this episode was another book in that same genre. It was uh, A Little Princess, which you've already done an episode on. That made me consider why all of my favorite books as a little kid were about orphan girls who get put in situations where all the adults are mean mm. to them. Uh, when I grew up with both of my parents and only very recently lost my dad. And as I was thinking that over last night, it occurred to me that much like Emily, I recognized that growing up, I was in a world that was too cold and too rigid and not entirely suitable for a child. When Emily goes to New Moon, there are all of these new rules to learn and a new way that she's expected to speak to her aunts who are raising her there. She does things that they think are scandalous and improper. <laughs> and she's living in a high control environment. She's also living in an adult world. There has not been a child at New Moon in decades previous since her mother was a little girl and grew up there. And she was, she was living in a world that was not very suitable for children. And that's the kind of world that I grew up in. I grew up in a world where little children were concerned about their own eternal salvation and the salvation of those around them. And these heavy questions of life and death and the afterlife and God and sin were mandatory for children 11, 12 years old, the age of Emily in the book, to be grappling with on a daily basis. So I think maybe that's one of the things that drew me to this genre of books, because that was something I could identify with. I also strongly identified with Emily's desire to be a writer and to be a poet. And I think the way that Emily talks about her own writing in the book really shaped a lot of how I feel about my own writing. Thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, we've talked quite a bit on the show over the years about this orphan trope, because it does come up again and again in kids literature and in film and TV meant for kids. And we've looked at it from all different angles. But I don't know that it's ever been discussed in that specific way, the way 
you describe what happens in these situations where often if a child is abandoned or, or loses their parents and then has to go live with a new family, they find themselves in a very adult world. More often than not, when we talk about why the orphan trope is so widespread, it comes down to it gives the kid characters the chance to do very adult things, which then creates a richer sort of palette for characterization and for adventure. Or often if a child is an orphan, then the kid readers or viewers will find themselves rooting for them even more. But that's a really interesting perspective and not one that I'd heard before. So thank you for sharing that. Well, I was I was growing up in an unusual situation for a child. And so is Emily. And our situations were very different, but I think I was able to take a lot of comfort in, oh, this is someone who has similar struggles to me, or this is someone who would get me, or this is someone who would understand me. Especially when she struggled against the rules of New Moon. So many times she said, she said something out loud that should have stayed in her head. She wanted a blue ribbon on her petticoat and, and Aunt Elizabeth said that's too frivolous. So she wanted to cut bangs and Aunt Elizabeth said, the no, no, one will <laughs> no Murray girl will ever have a bang. The bang storyline is like that. That's like the primary conflict of this book is this little girl wants to cut bangs and her aunt's like, fuck, no, absolutely the fuck not. I will not have it. I will not. Okay, but Gavi. How many times on our show have I talked about when you're raised in a hyper-fundamentalist environment or a cult environment, the little things become the biggest thing, like the end of the world to you? Well, that's something that I really wanted to talk about because I remember when you were telling me um, on an episode of our show, I think it was episode nine. It was the one where you were talking about how you ended up. Oh, is that the side hug from hell episode? Yeah. So, so you were telling okay. a story about how basically you got brought up on disciplinary charges at your cult college because uh you had a minor rules infraction what one of the things that you said was that when you're in a like a really heightened emotional state things that feel that that should just be like petty little things do get to become like massive 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 and life-changing and and you feel like if this doesn't go your way then nothing will go your way and i really internalized that while i was uh, listening to the audiobook of of emily of new moon and i understood i was trying to think you know she really she's writing these letters to process losing her father and she's writing letters to her father to really process that and then all of these little things that are going and going and going on are just like they feel like they're massive things about it. And she doesn't have anyone that she can talk to about it except for writing these letters to her father. And that's just like. And the one time she wants to take a physical control of something outside of the letters that she writes, outside of the poetry that she writes, outside of her stories that she writes, she wants to cut her hair. Mm -hmm. And the one time that she wants to take physical control over her own appearance she's not allowed to and i think that's why it feels like such a big deal to her i do also identify with emily in that i have to write things down to make them make sense i connected to that part of emily too because i'm a writer and so i think if i'd read this book when i was a kid i would have felt like i resonated with her story in her constant like drive and almost need to be creative and to have a space to express herself um, like the heartbreak when her aunt throws her diary in the fire, devastating. Oh. devastating. oh, that that almost made me cry. How did you feel about the way that she 
she talks about her need to write like uh, there's I can't find my screenshot now but there's a line where she says something like asking me not to write is like asking me not to breathe yeah I felt that very deeply in my heart that's how I feel too and I was even more like that I think when I was a kid I, I guess fortunately and unfortunately sometimes I have turned my love of writing into a career which is great because I get to do what I love but sometimes I think it it limits my ability to like fully lean into the fun and magic of it which is the part that I connected with so much when I was a kid. And when I was little, I constantly had a notebook with me, constantly. I mean, my mom always jokes about this. Like there are pictures of me in all kinds of random places with a notebook. I would sit in the bathtub and write stories with a pen and paper. And so I understand that about Emily and I would have been as devastated as she was. It actually reminded me a lot of Joe and Little Women. I don't know how familiar you are with Little Women, but Little Women's my favorite classic and I've read it so many times. And there were a couple of of moments in this book that reminded me of Little Women and one of which was when her diary is thrown in the fire. And I, I felt that like moment when Joe discovers that Amy has thrown her manuscript away and I had a similar like, no, what are you doing kind of moment. I wrote a lot of poetry as a little kid but I always, always, always had a notebook with me. And I still do. I use the notes app on my phone now, but I have over a thousand notes in my notes. Our friendship audition is going really well because we both really like notebooks. Okay, right? (laughs) I just want to do a quick check in there. Seems great. Well, I feel like Christmas will be easy when we become friends or birthdays or whatever because we can just send each other cute notebooks. Yeah, totally. Okay, I interrupted you though. Continue. (laughs) No, I wrote a lot of poetry as a really little kid. Okay like six, seven, eight years old. Um, And then I also wrote research papers for fun when I was a little kid because I wasn't really getting an education because of, you know, the cult stuff. Episode 15, if you need to know. Um, (laughs) It's fascinating. It's fascinating to listen to episode 15. (laughs) I was writing research papers and, and then I started writing fiction in high school. And then as I've grown up, I've, I've found that I, I can't write fiction on a deadline or with a purpose it's for fun and it's for fun only but i've really leaned into as an adult technical writing and research writing and i do enjoy that but i there's never been a time in my life when i wasn't actively writing i write currently five to ten thousand words a week every week it's and it's hard when somebody like takes that away from you and that's what happens to emily if somebody threw my laptop in a fire I think I would put them in the fire. There was also the chapter in which she's at school and her teacher, Miss Brunell, just literally the worst, worst, straight up. Like, I I don't know. I I like read these books back and I'm just like, how does because we've all met adults like that who will just power trip over a child. If it's like, you know, like a room parent when you were in elementary school, there was always just that one parent who was just like, oh, this person just, I don't know why they have a kid. They they clearly just hate children and like power tripping over people and that sort of thing. But just the, the teacher who like finds out she's writing poetry and is like, I want to search your desk for the rest of the poetry and then finds it and then says, I'm going to burn it just to fuck with you well she also the teacher also read the poetry to the class and made fun of her out loud which was that scene that scene did it made me cry yeah because like that 
I've had a similar experience, unfortunately. I wish Miss Brunel fell down the well instead of Ilse's mother. Yes. yes that's, that's that's like I wish Miss Brunel had gone literally anywhere else other than school. She was not <laughs> qualified to be in this classroom. But I was thinking as far as Emily's school experience went, Sadie, and I know we kind of referenced your experience in school and episode the episode 15 of it all. The school that Emily finds herself in is so regimented and there's so little room for actual learning. And I was thinking about the experiences you've shared on your podcast about your education, or as you would probably describe it, a lack thereof. And I, I was just wondering if if there were more parallels that you noticed on this reread there. Or Gavi, now that you have learned so much about like this education system, if there were any things that you picked up on. Well, the, the IFB educational philosophy is basically that we should go back to one-room schoolhouses because their idea is that, oh, you know, they taught the classics and they only taught the important things and the younger children learn from the older children and their discipline. And, you know, those are the things that they like about it. I grew up using ACE curriculum. So for people who aren't listeners to Leaving Eden, you get a little packet and you'll read a section, like in a history book, you'll read a few paragraphs about history and then go answer questions and then you grade your own work. So it's a completely hands-off, the kid teaches themselves program, which works very poorly for most students. But other than the actual curriculum, I was raised in something very similar to a one-room schoolhouse where there were similar rules and regulations and, and a highly regimented way of learning. I think I, I think I recognized that as a child though, because I knew that that was what we were trying to copy was the one room schoolhouse kind of feel. My thought on this was that was more that like the kids haven't changed between then and now. I mean, some kids can be really nice and kind and, and insightful to one another. Some other kids can be fucking ruthless. The kids in this story, they're ruthless. They're like, yo, there's this new orphan girl. You know what we should do? We should give her a dead snake in a box and then threaten to just, like, beat the fuck out of her on her first day of school. That's a good idea. Yeah, everyone down with that? Okay, let's do it. That sounds good. Good with you? It's good with me. Like, <laughs> That really is what some kids are like. Yeah, and I do think, like, I've learned from, from doing this podcast for the last couple of years and reading so many books about kids written over the last, like, 100, 120 years – as much as we like to think that like we as a species are evolving in the way that we teach our children to treat others, unfortunately, we're probably moving a lot more slowly than we would like. And I always am the idealist. And I'm like, no, I bet I bet things are different now compared to this Judy Bloom book from the 70s. And more often than not, my guests are like, mm, I don't think so. I think they're actually kind of very similar. I do like as a parent myself, I think I, I try to have a realistic, a realistic hope for my kid. I know that there's nothing that I can do to prevent my kid from coming up against a Rhoda in life. Yo, fuck Rhoda. Who's gonna <laughs> not treat her right and bully her. <laughs> I hate Rhoda. There's, there's nothing I can do to prevent my kid from eventually having a bad experience with a Rhoda. But I can try to keep my kid from being a Rhoda. So that's something that I can do. And I can also, to switch back to the Anne books, I can also hope for my kid to meet her Diana. Her bosom friend. Because I have been blessed with friends like that in my life. And I have friends that I've been friends with for 20 years. And 
we've kept in touch through social media and texting and all of these wonderful modern conveniences that we have. I try not to fret over what if my kid meets a Rhoda, and I try to focus on, okay, I'm going to keep her from becoming one, and then I'm going to hope that she will find her friend. I think that's a good plan for her. Well, we'll see. I want to talk a little bit about the circumstances that get Emily to New Moon, because I am not usually a crier when I read. I read a lot of books, and I think, unfortunately, it's made me like a little bit numb to most storylines, which I don't necessarily feel good about, but that's where we are. And um, I was reading the beginning of Emily of New Moon when I was away for a writing retreat, and I was in a hotel room alone, and there's a scene in which Emily loses her dad and they have a really meaningful conversation before he passes that brought a tear to my eye, which very rarely happens again when I'm reading. And and so much of, I think, the heartbreak there was that Emily didn't know that he was going to die. They have this friend, this this woman that helps out around the house with Emily named Ellen, who is the one to inform Emily that her father only has like a week to live. He has tuberculosis. And Emily is shocked. She's a kid. She didn't see this coming. And it's really heartbreaking. And then they have a conversation where he says a couple of especially heartbreaking things. He says, from a worldly point of view, I've certainly been a failure, but your mother's people will care for you. I know that the Murray pride will guarantee so much, if nothing else. And this one really got me. He says, you mustn't be afraid of anything, Emily. Death isn't terrible. The universe is full of love and spring comes everywhere and in death on the other side of the door. It just broke my heart. I chose this book and I did not remember that we actually have to read about her dad's death in the book. Oh no. And if I had remembered. I was thinking about that actually for you. I remembered that she loved her dad and her dad died. I did not remember that we had to actually read his thoughts and like go with her through his process of dying and if i had remembered that i would probably not have chosen this book sadie triggers herself (laughs) no i'm glad i'm glad that i didn't remember because this book was so worth it okay so i'm i'm really glad that 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 slipped my mind long enough to do this book because it was totally worth it it was heartbreaking i don't think we necessarily need to linger in that part so much because i actually think that what comes next is almost even more upsetting, which is that her mother's family literally draws straws to decide who is going to take care of her. I was hoping that would come up because that was another detail that I didn't remember, which was uh, a bit shocking. And she's there. She like witnesses this conversation. They, They make her pull the paper. They make her do it. Yeah, like, I'm just, like, wondering which one of them gets, like, the frozen envelope. I was so, like, because she was, she, like, hides under the table when she's hearing them discuss, like, who has to take her. How none of them really want her. I mean, and there's the one who's like, you know, I like, I like kids, but I've I've just got too many. I can't handle another one. And then there's some of them are just, just like, I've got money, but fuck kids. Just, man, it was, it was so upsetting for me to read. They're just, I'm just like, this is a little girl whose mother died years ago and her dad just died now and you guys are just like uh well if somebody's got to be nice to her it won't be me like it just atrocious in that part of the book they're also criticizing her for showing too much emotion and also criticizing her for not showing enough emotion yeah 
which felt pretty poignant. Mm. They're like, mm-hmm. hey, um, listen, your dad uh, died. Don't go crying about it because we hate that shit. Can't stand it. If I have to hear you crying, then you're going to be out on your own. But also be properly respectful. So don't enjoy anything in life. Like, don't be a child who wants things that are fun and comforting after experiencing a major loss. Don't do that either. Yeah, and not to, like, speak disparagingly on people of different religious beliefs. But I knew as soon as I, like, as I, like, got to the part where they're just like, oh, we are strict Presbyterians. I'm like, oh, they're Calvinists. Oh, this kid is fucked. It's it's Calvinism, right? So there's almost sort of a belief that, well, this kid is an orphan. Clearly God hates her. So I don't know, like, what we're going to do about this. And we know people through the podcast who practice a a really compassionate and logical version of Calvinism, but I don't think that's what the Murrays... I don't think so. No. <laughs> Compassionate isn't really their um catchphrase. Yeah, and at the same time they also have this like is I don't know if it's related to generational sin, but it seems like it's like a a generational sin adjacent view of like fam certain families behaving a certain way where they're just like this child's father was like a weirdo guy who had all sorts of strange interesting ideas and so we've got to protect her from being a weirdo or they're just like oh well clearly she was born bad because her dad was a weirdo but then they're also just like well we're the murrays and we do things a specific way because we're the murrays and that's who we are we're the murrays and we think we're better than everybody so like that's like half of the plot of the book is people who are just like oh you're a murray fuck the murrays they think they're better than everybody and the murrays being just like oh you're not one of us we're better than you like that's like half of this book yeah i think everybody knows a version of the murrays too and that was something that i found really fascinating because the first thing that we really learned about the murrays before they even like show up on the page is that they're really proud like that's their hallmark is that they have so much pride and i think you know the word pride like has all kinds of connotations to us in 2023 But for me, there's such cognitive dissonance and there shouldn't be because this is a real way of living for a lot of people. But there's this like cognitive dissonance of like, we are a proud people. We take so much pride in who we are and in being the Murrays. And at the same time, we don't care about other people. And unfortunately, like those two philosophies all too often like live in the same person or live in the same family. But it's so obvious in this book because they are so explicit over and over again about like, we are proud, we are proud, we are proud, like we are godly, we are godly, we are godly. And those things just are not consistent with the way that they treat actual human beings like Emily. Yeah, they have their own definitions of those words and that is what they live by. They have their own traditions and that is what they live by. And I, I was frustrated for Emily um, because she is stuck. Like she has no options. The fascinating thing about a kid in this situation, and we do see it again and again in kids' books, is like an orphan who finds themselves in Emily's spot, like fundamentally doesn't have a lot of agency, especially at this time in history. Like she didn't have any access to other people at least now in narratives about kids who are orphaned or otherwise alone, 
They might be able to find community online or through different kinds of programs in their community. But Emily really is by herself, which makes it all the more important when she does get to New Moon that she figures out how to like find friends or at least get comfortable with her new family that she has to get to know. And Aunt Elizabeth, who is like the mean aunt, is just terrifying. The good news is that when, when Aunt Elizabeth pulls the short straw or whatever and has to take Emily with her, Emily also gets Aunt Laura, who's like the nice aunt. So she like gets the best aunt and the worst aunt at the same time. And then also cousin Jimmy, who is described over and over in the book as simple, um, a word that we would not use in 2023. And Emily develops like a real fondness for him, even though people are very quick to make judgments about him. I love cousin Jimmy. Me too. Uh, yeah, I adore cousin Jimmy. I'm so glad that he existed in this in this world. I do want to point out, you were talking about Emily's lack of agency, lack of options, lack of connection to other people. She primarily copes with this with both nonfiction descriptions of the people who she has conflict with and with fantasy and imagination. She'll talk about quick trigger warning for death. It's uh, hypothetical and imaginary. But she talks about uh, something that Aunt Elizabeth won't let her do. And she says, well, when I die of consumption, Aunt Elizabeth will be sorry that she told me no. And so she goes up to her, her little writing room and she writes a long drawn out description of herself dying of consumption and Aunt Elizabeth falling to her knees at her bedside to beg her forgiveness. That is the most like <laughs> middle school shit. So angsty. <laughs> Teenage tween <laughs> angst, like a 12, 13 year old angst is timeless. That was me as a 12 and 13 year old. Absolutely. If you wanted to read the inside of my brain from that age, read that passage. Do you think that like if Emily were born in 1993, then she would have been like a huge fan of like My Chemical Romance, yep. All Time Low. Oh, absolutely. Panic and she would have been like vague <laughs> posting on MySpace, like posting deep song lyrics on MySpace. That's that's the person she would have been. Yeah. Yeah. She has a lot of feelings. I mean, and she has those violet eyes and that dark hair. So she would have taken some really dramatic selfies that she would post along mm -hmm. with those song lyrics on MySpace. I mean, all she wanted was to cut bangs. And in, in, if she had done that in 2008 instead, it would have just been those swoopy bangs in your yeah. face. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been that. She would have What's had like some, some violet in the bangs just i mean you know when she's writing her her poetry and her teacher is like you know half of this po most of this poetry is like shit but there's like some of it that's good he's like why are you talking about purple she so much and she's like i like purple she would have had purple streaks yeah. in her hair purple for streaks sure. for hundo p <laughs> but i kind of i kind of love making her a hero and not there is no shame in this book about how dramatic she is and how much she romanticizes life and how like how she fantasizes about her ideal world the author very clearly never shames her for these things and i think that's so important because we're so conditioned to see those things as cringe and to see teenage girls and preteen girls in general as cringe and funny and something to be made fun of. And I grew up in a world where teen girls were just ruthlessly made fun of by adults constantly. And I think even outside of cult world, in society, a teenage girl is shorthand 
for you're being cringe, you're being laughable, your concerns are not to be taken seriously, you're being frivolous, you're being dramatic. If you call somebody, you're, or you tell somebody you're acting like a teenage girl, that's what you're, that's what you mean. And I think this book was so valuable to me when I was a dramatic, frivolous, imaginative preteen and preteen, preteen and teenage person, because this book doesn't shame Emily for being those things. It shows us that having those traits is a normal and not inappropriate part of being a teen and preteen. It almost paints those traits as something that make her the hero of her own story. Mm. And I think that was one of the most valuable parts of this book for me. I love that. She has a lot of sort of quiet triumphs in this book, one of which I think is the way that she does manage to keep writing. We talked about her passion for writing early on and how Anne Elizabeth tries to strip her of that. And she finds a way to continue to write. And in that way, I think she does continue to romanticize her life. Like she's able to express the things about New Moon that are meaningful to her. And she's able to continue this relationship with her dad, even though he's not around anymore, which is something that I really connected with. I lost my grandmother a few years ago quite suddenly. And she was very, 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 very close with me. And through therapy, like I've learned... And I know that this isn't everyone's experience with grief, but I think something that I've learned is that like I can continue to have a relationship with her even though she's not here. And it looks way different than it did before. But I I feel very much like I have an ongoing relationship with her. And I it's taken me a long time to get there. But I felt that in Emily's story too, that like she was taken by surprise with this loss of her father and She'll never be the same, and that's not what anybody's trying to say, but she's been able to figure out how to maintain a different kind of bond with him as the years continue. Yeah, I think she wants to bring him with her into the rest of her life, and I think that's something a lot of people going through grief want to do. And I won't give extreme spoilers for the next two books in the series, but she continues to carry his legacy with her in different ways as the series goes on right because at the end when like right before aunt elizabeth grossly violates her privacy and reads all of her letters and is just like hey i read all of the stuff that you've been writing about me privately in the letters that you wrote to your dead father I went and I was snooping and I read them all and I didn't like all the stuff that you had to say about me Yeah, about in the me. letters that you wrote to your dead dad. Yeah. And but this is about me. Always. Yeah. <laughs> no, but she, there is a passage where they're just like the, uh, where, where Montgomery basically says, this is foreshadowing. This is the last time that Emily wrote to her dead dad. And she, maybe she just like, didn't really need to anymore. So that I guess was a way of saying it's been like a year or two. She's done well with processing it in this way. And now she can move on to the next step, which I thought was nice. Yeah, I, I agree. And it was, it's true. I was like, why are you, why are you so mad? <laughs> this isn't about you. Just like, also you've already burned this girl's first diary. Like just leave her alone. Give her some space to deal with this. There is entirely too much animal harm and book burning in this yeah, book. Yeah, Animal Harm was rough. The amount of kitten drowning in this book is egregious. I was deeply upset by this. And poisoning. There was some poisoning, too. Yeah! I think that it's kind of a literary device for the theme of possession, yeah. which is a huge theme in this book and only is 
twice as huge in the next two books of the series. This entire series uh, has possession as a major theme. Like, do you own a person? Do you own your words that you've written? Do you own an animal? Do you own your lover or your crush? Or the question of what and who do you own and what parts of other people do we take stake in is a major theme of this book. And I think it expresses itself. One of the many ways that that theme expresses itself is animals and do we love animals the way that we love people and do we own an animal and all of that sort of thing that it comes up over and over and then she asked the pre or, or the the pastor will my cats go to heaven he's like no nah, animals don't have souls sorry <laughs> she's like oh no yeah that's just like make make life even worse for this girl like just keep telling her shit that's gonna upset her please just keep going yeah so this is one major difference between when I read this book as a preteen and reading this book now. Uh, I had never had a cat before. We got our cat, Harry, and it was December of 2019. So this is my this has been my first opportunity to read this book with a cat uh, on my feet, and it was lovely. Yes, and but also heartbreaking because you're like, how could anybody hurt this cat? And what would happen to me if somebody even forced me to part with this cat? Like... Just even mm-hmm. the conversations early on when they were saying, oh, well, you can't bring the cat with you to New Moon. I was like, is there no justice in this world? No, there is none. This is crazy. I mean, I like one of my closest friends here in Philly, I because I, I've never had a pet before. But one of my closest friends in Philly has two orange cats mm-hmm. named Cowboy. They're very cute. They're, they're extremely cute. They're, they're named Cowboy, Bebop, and Ghoul. They're adorable little orange cats. And they're just like... In this book, they're like, hey, Emily, you've got two cats. You can only keep one of them. It's a, like it's like fucking Sophie's Choice up here, but with kittens. It's fucked up. It's this cruel. is bullshit. It's a cruel world. It's like, hey, your dad just died like two weeks ago. You can only keep one of your cats. Sorry about choose that. Choose one of your cats. Yeah, no. Choose, choose one of your cats. And they have like a giant estate. They're like mad about their neighbor cutting down apple trees and shit. And they're just like, oh, no, we can't have more than one cat on our massive property. Like, these people, it's just like they're just being assholes for the sake of being assholes and depriving this kid of, like, stuff that she wants just because they think it's, like, building character or some shit. It's the most, like... So you were saying about, uh, like, why is this world so cruel to this child? It's at, at some points in the book, it's just loss after loss after loss on a large scale and a small scale. I think that's really what I identified with as a kid though, because like, I think maybe every kid feels like that at some point, like the world is just not going my way right now. And just every time I think I get back up to my feet, something else happens. And I think I got a hold of this book just at a crucial moment growing up when I, when I did feel that way. And I was just about Emily's age in the first book when I read the first book for the first time. So it, I think part of why this book is so dear to me is that it just hit me at the perfect, the perfect moment in time to make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, and Emily had to go through this and she couldn't even listen to like joy division or yeah. Again, like uh... she had no connection, no connection (laughs) to the outside world. Such a lonely place. Yeah. I mean, given the subject matter of your show, I also would be remiss if I didn't ask about this other through line of the book, which is, really about like what kind of God Emily wants to believe in. And we see it in the first few pages when she's comparing Ellen, this sort of like mean caretakers version of God to her father's version of God. And she talks about how 
she doesn't want to believe in Ellen's God, but she is okay to believe in her father's version of God. And it comes up again later in the book when she makes a new friend at school named Ilsa, who is very controversial because all the other kids make fun of her because her father is an atheist and doesn't believe in God at all. And Ilsa has inherited some of those beliefs. And so Elsa and Emily are kind of together working out their feelings about their eternal place in the world and about salvation and about if God is real, even about if the devil is real. Like they're just all of these conversations throughout the book about the different kinds of God that people believe in. And so as I was reading this, I, have, I was like, asterisk, 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 like all of these things that I need to make sure I chat about with my Leaving Eden friends. So yeah, I just wanted to open up that conversation as well and see what you had to say about it based both on your own personal experience and on all of the time and research that you've invested into your show. I think Emily is asking questions both about the nature of God and also about maybe a form of universalism because Emily Emily isn't saying God is like what my father believed in and God is not like what Ellen Green believes in or God is real unlike Dr. Burnley thinks but but God is not my Aunt Elizabeth's version of God God is my father's version of God she's not really making hardline determinations about the nature of God, I think she's saying more about the ways that people choose to believe in God and what a person's beliefs about God say about them as a person and how their beliefs about God influence their actions. A lot of this struck me as she's talking about God because that's what people talked about in Victorian era Prince Edward Island. And that's kind of the only way that she has, every, everyone is religious or has religious beliefs, except for the one family who are atheists. And I think that's the only way that she has to conceptualize why people behave the way that they do. And she doesn't want to believe in a God that would make people rough and crude and rigid like Ellen. And she doesn't want to believe in a God who doesn't believe in people having any fun like Aunt Elizabeth's God. So she's looking for her own her own version of God that makes her feel heard and whole. Maybe that's a way to put it. I think that's a very interesting take. The one issue that I think that the if there was one plot line in this book that I felt like just kind of bothered by a little bit, it was probably the Dr. Burnley atheism, his wife left him slash accidentally died slash somehow died plotline because the idea is the character of Dr. Burnley, he's presented immediately as like, oh, this guy's an atheist. His atheism has something to do with his wife and, and, and the mother of his daughter not being around anymore. But who knows anything like so he's an atheist because he thinks that his wife left him for her cousin and went away on a boat with him. And then when he find and that's not really fleshed out. It's not really like he doesn't like go in and have like a deep discussion about like, well, what is the nature of our existence if there is no God? It's it's more just like I've decided that God does not exist because a bad thing happened to me. And then when it turns out that his wife, who he thought, who he like loved, 
she didn't leave him for somebody else and is still alive with somebody else. She's legit dead. He's like, oh, that's how it is? Oh, cool. I guess I believe in God again. That's just like, to me, that just felt like the most almost ass backwards way. Like, if you love this person, you're more happy that she's dead and still loves you rather than she is alive and she ran off with somebody else because you were literally twice her age when you married her. Like that to me, that just like that plot line really just was the one thing that bothered me. And it was like, oh, well, I guess we can all be happy now because Emily figured out that this scandalous thing that we all thought happened and everybody was so ashamed of this scandal didn't actually happen. So everybody's cool now, even though somebody is dead instead of alive like that that really kind of rankled me a little bit yeah i mean it is the ass backwards and i also think that it is reflective of the way that people often back themselves into their religious beliefs or their philosophies like i i think so much of the way many humans view religion or even just like view their faith in their world in the world view their place in the world, view spirituality, view all of those things, like is contingent upon the lens through which they're like experiencing often really traumatic things. And so much of the time it's not logical and it doesn't always feel like an A to B to C to D line, but that doesn't make it any like less frustrating to read about in a book because we as readers like expect things to make sense. What I really got out of that part of the book was that it was meant to center Emily and foreshadow this semi-psychic ability that Emily is going to show more in other books of the series. So to me, this feels more like author error than anything, because we're getting close to the end of the book and oh, we still got some foreshadowing to do Yeah, that Emily is going to have not quite psychic abilities, but it, at the very least, a prescient, a prescience about things Does she find the in diamond? the future. Yeah, I was wondering not that in this too. Book. When I was looking through my notes, I was like, the diamond, we never really like circled back to this. <laughs> right, because like at the beginning, they're just like, hey, there's an abandoned house and there's a diamond hidden somewhere in it. And I'm just like, cool. At the end of the book, is Emily going to find the diamond? And it's just like, nope, never mentioned again. Or it's like mentioned like in passing. And you're just like. It felt sort of like video gamey where I was like, oh, we're going to find a diamond and there's going to be like, like funny sound that goes with it. I can tell you, I looked up this. It's in a different book in the series. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's, it's. It looks like she finds it in the third, in the third book of the series. Is there a plot line where like the bank is coming for the house or something and they, they can't uh, afford to keep it unless like they make a bunch of money and there's no way for them to make a bunch of money. And then she finds the diamond and they're saved. I don't think so. Okay. No, the 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 further two books in the series are are about her continuing to chase her education and try to fall in love with a lot of different people. Oh, that sounds compelling. I love that for her. Yeah, I might I would consider reading the rest of these books and I did not feel that way after I read Anne. Like I had no interest in reading more Anne books, but I think I would read more Emily books. How bad do you hate Dean? Because <sighs> if you read the other two books, you have to deal with more Dean. Okay, then maybe I'm not prepared to read the other two books. I didn't hate Dean as much as I hated what's her her it's not Perry's mom. What's her other friend's name? The Teddy? The, the, yeah, Teddy's mom. Oh Teddy's yeah, mother. Teddy's, Teddy's mom's, mom's awful. a fucking psycho. Yeah. Like the Teddy's mom was I trying really to like love... marry them off and like get get Emily to commit to marrying Teddy so that Teddy would be able to 
have more money when he grew up. Like, that was really messy. But also, Teddy's mom hates anything that he loves because she is incredibly possessive. Like I'm saying, possession is a major theme. So Dean is a much older man, I think 22 years older than Emily. Right. He was friends with her father. He was friends with her dad. He is literally old enough to be her father. So he is, when he's meeting her, she is... 12 or just about to turn 13 so he is like 34 35 she gets in a a life or death situation and he saves her life which is great good job but then he tells her because i saved your life your life belongs to me right and you will always belong to me so that's another place that the theme of possession um comes up and dean is like very clearly a predator (laughs) and makes jokes about marrying her the first time that he meets her when she is 12 or 13 and he is 34 or 35 and then continues to do so and follow her through the next two books oh i don't know and essentially become a creepy stalker attempts to emotionally manipulate her into marrying him for two more books and she doesn't in the end she does get a very lovely happy ending questions but you you have to deal with dean dean is like omnipresent through the next two books of the series and he's awful and i hate him so sadie when you were reading these as a kid did you like when you read this first one you're just like oh this dean guy did you think he seemed all right or did you think he seemed weird no i hated him from the beginning i hated that he would tell her that her life belonged to him it's so creepy and inappropriate and horrible yeah, so even even as a preteen reading this, that immediately struck me as this is not okay, this is not good. No, we do not like this guy. Yet you were in fundamentalism where like you were surrounded by also there were many men around you who were also predators. Yeah. And lots of men told me I was their property too. Yeah, that says that says a lot about how creepy Dean is in this book, I think. The fact that he yeah. <laughs> that he is so creepy that he set off the fondue girls yeah. creep filters. Yeah, that says a lot. Well, on the whole, I'm curious, Gavi, I know you didn't read this book when you were a teenager, but how do you think it it overall holds up in twenty twenty three? I'm curious, especially because you listen to the audiobook and I always like to hear about people's experience listening to an audiobook. How did it sit with you in contemporary time? I found it enjoyable. I found the the character of Emily was some was a, a sympathetic character and her friends see, and like the things that she was going through. It seemed like, oh, that's a thing that like a regular person might go through if they were living in a different time. It didn't seem like it was particularly unbelievable, despite the fact that there were maybe a couple of plot points. That I was just like, oh, that's maybe a little bit too this or that or the other thing. But um, I, I, I definitely thought that it held up. I, I found it enjoyable to listen to, aside from the fact that I was just really angry at every character who was mean to Emily, just that that was the general pervasive attitude. And I guess that must have been a general pervasive attitude at the time. And now I'm thinking, well, I'm glad I wasn't an orphan 200 years ago. So I think we can all be glad for that. <laughs> yeah, I would have died of consumption probably. Yep. And then people would have been really sad. Sadie, I am so appreciative you've been so generous sharing your own like personal experiences as they relate to this book. And I'm curious when you compare the reading experience that you had recently coming back to Emily of New Moon, how does it hold up compared to your memories of it when you read it when you were younger and when it really made such a big difference in your life? So I was so nervous about going back and reading this book as an adult because I was afraid that it wouldn't be magical anymore. There's a, there's a line in this book kind of in the last four chapters where Emily talks about 
periodically going back to her hoarded stash of manuscripts for stories and poems that she wrote and descriptions that she wrote and weeding out. So every few months or so she'd go through and suddenly she'd realize that one of them had lost the magic and she had grown enough to see, oh, this isn't, this isn't good. This poem that I thought was so beautiful. Oh, it's, it's actually not great. Okay. I'm gonna, and she would throw those away and burn them and keep writing. And a few months later, she'd go back to this hoarded stack of poetry and manuscripts and she'd read through something else and she'd realize, oh, I thought this one was great and now I'm realizing that it's not so good. And she'd burn it and keep writing. And I was so terrified that I would have that experience with this book, that I would pick it up and the magic would be gone and it wouldn't feel meaningful to me like it did in the past. And I am so happy that it really did. This book was every bit as delicious and sparkling and magical as it was the day that I picked it up, literally probably almost 20 years ago. And I, I, my only wish is that I had reread it sooner. Oh. As far as how it holds up in 2023, um, there's, there's definitely a lack of diversity of representation of literally any kind. But fortunately, I think sometimes some people want to excuse works that are blatantly racist or homophobic or whatever as, oh, it's just a product of its time. I think describing this book as a product of its time is much more appropriate. There is, I, there is one tiny phrase where Emily sees a shadow on her wall and she says, oh, this is what a person of color's profile might look like. So she's exoticizing people of color who she may have never even met in real life. And there are there are phrases like that, but outside of that, there's nothing blatantly racist, there's nothing blatantly homophobic or anything that would be harmful. It is just a complete lack of representation, and I think that is a much more appropriate use of this book as a product of its time. The only one that I can think of is how they describe Cousin Jimmy as simple, yeah. which is just not, I guess that was the term for the day, the ableist uh, yeah. term for the day, and just like, hmm. But he seemed like the whole book, he was the only one that had, like, any sense about him. Yeah. He was the hero, I think. Yeah. You might could call that a little bit of a shot at representation because Cousin Jimmy is different from the other people. And yet he is portrayed as a well-rounded character. He is insightful. He is useful. He is very helpful to Emily. So maybe a quarter of a point for representation for that. Also, like any there's something. Anytime anybody like starts talking shit about cousin Jimmy, Emily's about to throw hands. Yeah. Um, which I do appreciate on her point. Yeah, we see Emily, who is the main character embracing difference when it comes to cousin Jimmy. And I did like to see that. Cousin Jimmy was great and I assume there's more of him in the other books, Sadie. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. He comes back. I loved him. He was just a joy to read about. And and I will say to your point about there not being anything like blatantly racist, blatantly homophobic for a book of this age, for a book this old, given the many books that I've read for this podcast, this book's doing pretty well. So um, I enjoyed reading it. I'm so glad that you reintroduced me to it after I had only come across it very briefly a few years ago and I enjoyed reading it as well I'm so glad we got to talk about it 
other than Emily of New Moon, I know that you both are often reading things for your podcast, so I don't know that you get to do much pleasure reading. Um, so if you have been reading anything for pleasure and you want to recommend it, you can go ahead. But if that's not the case, I would also be open to you sharing TV show recommendations, podcast recommendations, movie recommendations, anything that you've just really been enjoying lately. Uh, I've been reading two books by Mary Roach. I just finished Stiff. Mm. She's kind of a, a pop science writer. And Stiff is about all the things that we do with dead people after they die. And then I also have on my shelf Gulp, which is about your digestive system. And that's one of the next things that I'll read when I'm done reading some incredibly horrible things for podcast episodes coming out in the next month. Oh, my God. Dude, the, the book that we've been, I mean, I've, I've just finished reading it. Um, Sadie, you've, you've just finished reading it. The book that we've been reading for podcast stuff is uh, To Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl, which is legitimately like the worst book that I've ever read in my life ever. Wow. But yeah, sadly, I don't get to do much pleasure reading these days. If I, if I do read books, it's usually by audiobook, and it's usually just like stuff that I remember from my childhood, almost as like a brain cleanse from all of the truly horrific stuff that I have to read from from doing this podcast that we do. So I don't know if there's anything that I personally really want to plug at this point. Yes. And we're certainly not plugging how to train up a child. <laughs> Absolutely not. That Absolutely that book not. was so upsetting to me yeah. to read. It was. Can we do a reverse yes. plug where we encourage everyone never to read it? Never. The, the, Michael and Debbie Pearl should be in jail. I like I. Yes. Well, I'm sorry you had to read that book, but I will look forward to hearing you talk about it. I'll include links to Sadie's recommendations in the show notes for this episode. But speaking of your podcast, let's take another minute to talk about Leaving Eden. I will say it again. I am a huge fan of yours. I've listened to every episode um, and I have recommended it to several of my friends in my own podcast community and in my personal life. But I would love for you to share a little bit more about your show with my audience because... I think we need to send some more people over to Leaving Eden. So uh, Leaving Eden is a, sh a show that we started during quarantine. Uh, so coming up on, well, we started working on it about three years ago this month. And then we published three years ago in August. It's the story of my life in the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, which is the church that I was raised in. I was raised really, really deep within this movement. I was just completely immersed in it. So I think I'm a good person to not only tell the historical stories of how the independent fundamental Baptist movement came to be, but also provide an almost anthropological look at my life as a child. I lived a life that is totally different from what a lot of modern people experience. And I think I'm a good person to explain all of the details of what that life was like. Yeah. One thing I will say about Sadie is that she is very analytical in the way that she talks about things. And I, I personally, I have no experience or, or I had no experience when we started up the show with not just Christian fundamentalism and cults and stuff, but I had almost no experience with Christianity and Christian theology in general, because I grew up Jewish in a very secular environment in a very secular city. And so at the start of the show, I knew almost nothing about the Christian theology and the, the Christian beliefs that were behind the, the cult that Sadie was raised in. So 
if you know nothing about cults, if you know nothing about religion or or fundamentalism, it's a good place to really understand about that stuff because I'm where you or I started out where you are now. But Sadie is a fantastic person at explaining these things to people who don't understand it or don't have that background knowledge. And and she's really fantastic at that. Well, thank you for saying that. Well, you are. I uh, think we, it's Yeah, true. you are. We do like to do a lot of different things over on our show. We talk about my own story and wild things that happened to me when I was in fundamentalism, but we also talk about the history of American evangelicalism. We talk about the history of the IFB movement. Uh, a lot of our episodes turn out pretty true crime-ish because uh, it turns out a lot of prominent fundamentalists have done crimes. <laughs> Josh Duggar. Yeah, like Josh Duggar and more. We also do some fundy snarking where we kind of gently poke fun at people who have put themselves out there on a public platform and tried to make themselves leaders in uh, evangelistic movement and evangelicalism in general. We do book reviews of the most terrible books ever to come out of Christian fundamentalism. We We like to mix it up. We did a book review about I think for, was it for Valentine's Day? Was that one on the Patreon or was that one on on a streaming episode? Anyway, we, for Valentine's Day, we had like... This most recent Valentine's Day was on Patreon. Yeah, that was available. There was, was it last year? I think you did have one last year. That was, that was... That was yeah, last yeah. year's Valentine's Day was on yeah. the mainstream. Yeah, feed. we we did, Um, there, there have been a couple of like Christian fundamentalist sex manual books that have been put out and that we've done reviews of and those have all been fun episodes i think if you're a new listener you want to go to check out episode 57 of the show because that's an episode that we specifically made because it was right around the time when we were doing a reddit ama and we wanted to make a special episode where if you haven't you know been listening to all of the back catalog and you just want a good episode for onboarding episode 57 is the one to to go check out yeah, I, I happen to think that your show is like the best researched podcast that I listen to and have listened to. I'm so impressed by the work you put into it. It's clear how how much effort goes into every single episode. And I have actually said, I think I, I wrote a blog post once about like, you know, what I kind of wanted to learn from some of my favorite podcasters. And I called out Leaving Eden because of your just incredible research and the effort that you're able to put into each show. So I wanted to shout you out for that and just echo that there's a little bit of everything in your catalog. And if you're just a person who's like interested in learning more about super specific subcultures and often like groups of people that are living like right in front of us, like today um, within our own lifespan and in our own communities, go check out Leaving Eden because there's a lot to learn and um, Gavi and Sadie are just a lot of fun to listen to. Well, thank you so much for that glowing review. <laughs> I'm a big fan and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and uh, for giving me the opportunity to try out to be your friend. Audition passed. Oh. <laughs> Agreed. I was hoping we would get to the verdict on Mike, but I didn't want to pressure you. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so if you're if you are going to be our friend, you need to know that he is always like yeah. this. Yeah, always like on or off. Mic. Got it. Just so all you're right, aware. I'm prepared. Well, thank you for letting me try out. I'm glad I passed, and it was a lot of fun talking to you. I can't wait to continue to listen to your show, and hopefully, we can stay in touch. Thank you for having us. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media/podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. 
Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>